This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Hey, Second Wind. This is going to be a mind-blowing episode for many of you as I uncover with one of the most brilliant women I've ever met some things about our medical system and disease that we don't really get to hear much about. So anyway, I was reminded of this quote a couple of days ago, and it's, life happens for you, not to you which is super hard to wrap your brain around when you've been diagnosed with Lyme disease, which I have. But flip side of that is I have learned so much, read so many books, listened to so many podcasts, and have been able to meet some amazing people because of this diagnosis. And one of them is Chris Newby. And I heard her on the podcast, Living with Lyme with Cindy Kennedy, who is also on Second Wind, the podcast. I was so intrigued by her story that I went and ordered the book, Bitten is the name of the book, and then watched her documentary that she was instrumental in researching and producing called Under Our Skin. And I cannot recommend, I just think this has to be required viewing in all of our schools. Everybody should watch this. And Chris is to me probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever come in in contact with. And Chris says she lost her 40s to Lyme disease and has been in the darkest corners of research in order to make sense of this disease, what it is, how it's evolved, and why to benefit the greater good, all of us. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. I am starstruck and I am so honored that you are giving of your time to Second Win the podcast. Thanks very much, Wendy. I appreciate the invitation to share the message with other people and to talk about my favorite disease. Your favorite disease. Yeah. Favorite in air quotes. Yeah, in air quotes. (laughs) I mean, for you, not to you. It's like, so it's really, I kind of feel like it happened to me. But anyway, let's start with what happened to you? What happened to you? You were on vacation, right? Yeah. My husband and I were Silicon Valley go-getters. And I was an engineer by training and a tech writer by profession. And, you know, we were living the starving startup life. And my husband, who designed the TiVo remote, he had an IPO. And so finally, I was feeling relief. It's like, now I can quit and write my novel or screenplay. And we have enough money for college. Everything's great. So we went to see my best friend in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. We had a lovely vacation there and we came back home to California and all of a sudden my husband and I got really sick. I mean, super sick, sicker than we'd ever been. And we were just super athletic, healthy. This was an unusual occurrence. And we went to our local clinic and we got the doctor on call and she says, well, I think it's a virus. Go away. Come back in a week if it's still bad. It should take care of itself. And then after four days, we said, 
oh no, this is super bad. So it's like the worst flu you've ever had. Probably feels just like COVID. Headaches, sweats, incredible weakness. Then we went back to her and she goes, well, okay, I'll consult with the infectious diseases doctor here. And he said, well, I said, could it be Lyme? Because we went to Martha's Vineyard. There are tick signs everywhere. My friend, before we went out, gave us a brochure and said, do tick checks. We did tick checks. One of them got through the goalpost. And so that started our journey a year, 10 doctors and $60,000 just to get diagnosed. I was 42. He was 43. And then once we were diagnosed, it was five years of hell and treating it to get back to our full health. That pretty much wiped out my 40s. And that was the beginning. And it's sort of like the saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, the best, the best thought out plans. (laughs) What was the turning point? What, what, who was the doc? Like, no names or anything, but what doctor finally took you seriously and actually diagnosed you with Lyme? I mean, you were talking to all these doctors while you're spending all this money saying, hey, wait a second, I kind of think it could be Lyme because we were in Martha's Vineyard and this happened right after. Yeah, I said it to the first seven doctors and none of them would test us. By the time we were about six months into untreated Lyme disease, I think both of us were silently saying, this is serious. This could be the end. We could leave our kids as orphans. We're like a month away from having to sell our house. You know, if my husband lost his job, I had to shut down my consulting business. He would go to work every day because we needed health insurance because we didn't know what was wrong with us. Right. He would go to the whiteboard giving a presentation and all of a sudden he'd freeze and he wasn't, didn't know where he was, what he was talking about. And he would just like left the room because he didn't know what to say. Really? (laughs) So we were so neurologically impaired. It was like we simultaneously had chronic fatigue, arthritis, early onset dementia, irritable bowel syndrome was one of the worst things. Once the head of infectious diseases at our local clinic said he thought we were suffering from a psychosomatic couples thing, they refused to test us for Lyme disease because it's rare. But if they don't know what it is, because it's such a weird disease that moves around your whole body and We go to specialist after specialist and they just look at one part of your body. They don't look at the whole thing. I said, I'm going to the large academic medical center. So we went there and at least we'd been sick by eight months then. And they threw every test they could imagine at us, including the Lyme test. Finally, the Mm -hmm. Lyme test came back positive for me and they tried to hide the results. What is why? (laughs) Well, I found out later, but. Okay. So he, had, yeah, that's he, had the, he had the folder and he opened it and it, you know, parvovirus negative, cytomegalovirus negative, HIV negative, syphilis negative. And they closed it. And I said, well, what about the Lyme test? Oh, oh, he says, well, that was positive, but that's a really bad test. So we're going to ignore it. Oh my God. And so it was the first positive test after about eight months. And I got into the car and cried all the way home. And then I went home and I Googled on CDC and it said, hey, this first test, which is a screening test, if that's positive, you need to do the next one. So I called them up and they said, oh, oh, we must have made a mistake. So I took it again and it was positive again. Then I went back into the infectious disease office and the main doctor came in with a box of tissues and he handed it to me and said, we don't have the tools to take care of people like you here. And he fired my husband and I as patients. 
and wouldn't give us a referral to anyone else. So <laughs> then I went on the internet and on the internet, there's this very active Lyme community trying to help others because they've all experienced this too. There's not a good test for Lyme disease. Then I found a local doctor. She saw both of us. She gave us the right tests. She sorted out that we had two tick-borne diseases. It's babesiosis, which is a malaria-like red blood cell disease and Lyme disease. And together, those two are really hard to get rid of. And then she gently started us on antibiotic protocols. When you first get treated, you get super bad reactions called a herx as you kill the germs. And so that started the recovery process. And it was just so great to have a doctor who knew what she was doing, would listen to us, and we got better. <laughs> yeah, but there was a time there, you know, I mean, you kind of glossed over it, but you both were super concerned that you were going to die. Like, yeah, I mean, we're done here. We've been so healthy and we're used to, you know, you take 10 days of antibiotics if you have an ear infection and you move on. But slowly over time, we're just debilitated. You lose your friends. They don't understand why you don't want to go to a party. <laughs> I told my fellow mothers, I can't drive your kids to car to soccer practice anymore. And they're just like, you know, and I said, oh, yeah, you have to explain. look at I went on the wrong way down the street, a one way street that I go down all the time. I stop at a light and I don't remember what the red, green and yellow lights mean on the traffic. I sit there. Okay. What does yellow mean? <laughs> yeah. So I felt like it wasn't safe for me to drive their kids. So it was unconceivable that in this day and age, they didn't know what was wrong with us. And it just seemed like they didn't care. We were their problems. We weren't easy. So yeah, they couldn't just slap I, a medicine on and say, go. Yeah. So it, it was a huge, you know, matrix moment, red pill, blue pill, where you really see the medical system. Yeah. Um, as it is. Yeah. Not so, as like we have the best medical system in the world. No, we don't. And no. COVID showed that. Yes, it did. And I, I dove into the book Bitten. Um, I've listened to it, I, I said, two or three times now on Audible. And every time I'm just, it doesn't get old. The story doesn't get old the ins and outs of it are crazy. And then to have the documentary as well. I think people want to know, first of all, Lyme itself, you can't see it on people. So therefore it's very hard to empathize with anyone or understand it. And the symptoms are so random for each person. It's like this unique set of circumstances for each person. We have a lot of commonalities, but like I was on the phone with you going, all right, so uh, off the record, I can't stop gaining weight. What is happening? And I'm not drinking and I'm eating really well and I'm no sugar, da, 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 da. I'm trying to exercise as best I can. And you're like, yeah, that happens. It's your body's just fighting and it's using cholesterol and all these things. And I'm like, you know, add insult to injury, you know, on top of it all. But it's just one of the very many side effects. So what made you, now you're starting to feel better. You can now be a, a, a mother again. You said that, that was really tough. Your boys were young and kind of had to fend for themselves a lot at dinner time. You and your husband were done, you know, at five o'clock, right? I mean, I, I know I was. By the end of the day, I laid down and watched Apple TV episode after episode. I could just press the little play button. So what made you start digging? At first, so we were 
we were treated at the beginning of the summer. And by the end of the summer, we were feeling a little better and we had hope, which was great. Right. And then I started seeing Lyme disease everywhere. You know, when you have friends with chronic achy things and I was on a dog walk with a neighbor and our kids were on the same soccer team. And the dads said, yeah, our and I knew this son, he's just like the smartest go-getter guy ever. The little, the little kid is short, but it's like, he's like roadrunner with his legs that go like this. And he says, wow, he's been sick. He's missed most of school this year. We don't know what's wrong, but we just went to this expert at Stanford. And he says, our son has celiac disease. So we're just completely going off gluten for the whole summer. And I said, well, okay, but it sounds like Lyme disease. I mean, he's a soccer player. He's in the grasses in Portola Valley and they have a lot of Lyme disease. And he says, no, no, this guy's right. So they do that, that gluten-free experiment for a couple months. And then he and his wife came back. Okay. We want to know more about Lyme disease. And so their son tested positive. And then I heard that the leading pediatrician was going to speak at the grand rounds at Stanford um, on Lyme disease. So he was from back East, a prestigious Ivy school. So I called up the mom and said, Hey, let's go. We'll hear about the latest research for children. She goes, great. So we went to this steep arena. There's just maybe 150 future doctors of America there. And this pompous Ivy League guy comes out and says, Lyme disease, it's easy to diagnose, treat and cure. It's just hyped. And he was just so arrogant. And then he holds up a patient chart in front of all these doctors and says, for example, I have this mom who came to me. She thinks her son has Lyme. He tested positive, but that's a bad test. I, when you have parents like this that are just insistent, you might want to consider Munchausen's by proxy, where it's a very rare syndrome where a mother wants to get attention, so she poisons her child. Right. So oh all of a sudden, God. I realize it's the mom I brought to the grand rounds, and I look over to her, and her you eyes about her. Yeah, and her oh son, because they oh they heard the specialist was coming in. They pulled some strings, and they got to see him. Her eyes became pools of water and then just like a faucet there's tears streaming her down you know in front of all we're in the audience and I guess at that point I I thought wow this isn't just about my husband and I and we have you know we just got a bad doctor in California this is about a systemic problem where this guy is being celebrated for passing on really bad information so at that point I said oh my gosh I need to do something. So I had worked at Apple and I'd done some short videos. So I thought I'm going to do a documentary because if you could see, you could really meet this mom and her family, you know, they're not faking it. You wouldn't think it for a second that she'd be poisoning her own child. <laughs> no, she's right. She was an engineer like me. I mean, they had a successful business. So at that point I, I said, I'm going to get this video of this guy because the stuff he said is outrageous because there was a video camera up there. So I got a hold of the video and then over Thanksgiving, I transcribed the whole thing and I posted it on the internet because I said, people have to know that what he's saying doesn't match up with the research. Wait, uh, Chris, Chris, how did you, how did you just going to this grand rounds ask for the video? <laughs> I just, I just did. I mean, and they I let just, you have it. They burned a copy, yeah. And I guess they're looking at you saying, Oh, what's this? What's this housewife gonna do? You know, yeah, she just, oh, okay. So now um, it's infamous, it's infamous on the internet now. And because of that, uh, this turned out there was another filmmaker, really talented, Andy Abrahams Wilson, who had just started a Lyme disease documentary in Marin, so just an hour and a half away. 
And he contacted, someone in his office contacted me, said, can we use the transcript? This is amazing. And, oh, I had a copy of the video too. So anyways, I said, you know, there have been no feature films on Lyme disease. Let's team up. So I showed up in his office and he's thinking, oh, there's a soccer mom. She's never done a film before. But I just, I said, hey, we have different sets of skills. I can research like nobody else. And we just teamed up and it was a five-year process that we filmed Lyme patients all over the U.S and 350 hours. And then it was like, we premiered at Tribeca in 2008. And then we were in the Oscar running. So we had to show the film all over the US to qualify. And so that was like a five-year process. But what really hit me was it was such a Lyme disease problem is so big. It's all over the US. I mean, Andy went to Alaska, San Diego, Florida. And then so it's everywhere. And I guess it just really, I felt anger at the injustice that all these people are going sick and no one cares in the system because there's bad information being spread by just a handful of academics. Which is a great segue. Good job. (laughs) To the book and the research that you were doing as to why there is a correlation between the Lyme disease and where we are with research and credibility and insurance companies paying and doctors administering helpful solutions for us, all because of your research. We know now why that is. And it's kind of, I know it's a big story, but can you wrap it up for us? Yeah, it's actually really complicated and it's about- It is complicated. There's probably not that many people who are evil in their heart, but there's, the system has incentives that reward the wrong things when it comes to Lyme disease. So the organisms behind AIDS and Lyme were discovered in the same year, but a lot of the researchers who were profit-driven went to AIDS because the cure for Lyme is off-patent antibiotics. There's, you can't patent a new drug on that. For AIDS, oh, we can invent some new antivirals. Mm -hmm. So I think the A team went over to AIDS. So usually with a new disease, pharma is your friend, but this time they weren't. So pharma also went, put the big guns on AIDS. And then also a new law had passed before the Lyme organism was identified. And it said researchers and researchers institutions could receive royalties for discoveries related to vaccines and test kits. So for example, the person who ran the Lyme group in the CDC, she has a salary of about 140,000 and she could equal her salary on royalties if she had patents on Lyme disease. So she took out patents on the Lyme disease tests and she said yeah. she waived them, but that has an incentive. Mm-hmm. So it's like farm is going to go where the money is and there's no money in Lyme. All of a sudden the researchers are partners with big pharma rather than trying to publish their findings right away and share it with the broader scientific world. They team up with a pharma company for a new test or a vaccine. And then all that information about the new germ is secret and it can't be peer reviewed because it's intellectual property that they're protecting for future profits. So the thing about Lyme disease is that really influence the speed of research. And I think that original team got some of the science wrong on Lyme disease. And now 30 years later, we're stuck with that bad foundation of science that we're building on right now. So it it will collapse because I think the truth eventually comes out with science. But in the meantime, 
how many lives are destroyed. Right. And as people watch the documentary, they'll see there are doctors. And there was a gal on my show whose daughter actually was a patient of one of the doctors in the documentary who is fighting still to save his practice. And people don't understand that these doctors who are helping and working with all of the ways to make us better are being sued, are being told they can't practice anymore. Why is that? Well, first of all, you have this really powerful infectious disease society. It's called IDSA. And they're specialists for people that are like bubble boys, transplant victims, bubble boys, and they're on the brink of death. And to do their job well, they need an arsenal of effective antibiotics. And so they set themselves up as the antibiotic police to make sure people don't overuse antibiotics. And when they hear that people with Lyme disease are going to be on antibiotics for months to years, that just like makes their hair stand on end. So they want to stop these high profile Lyme doctors from overusing antibiotics. They feel like it will create antibiotic resistance. I think from experts I've talked to, there is no proof that this leads to antibiotic resistance. And what right do infectious diseases doctors have to sacrifice my life for some hypothetical non-proof. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of them think they're doing the right thing, but because we don't have a good test for Lyme disease and the NIH hasn't funded a treatment trial over 20 years, 2020 NIH allocated exactly $0 for treatments. So they've just given up. So the doctors like I'm seeing right now who are making a difference and helping us get back to our lives and eradicate these spirochetes and all these co-infections from our deep within our cells, they're doing this out of their own research, out of things that are being written. And they're kind of like, would you say, are they winging it? A little bit because there is, or is it better that they're winging it because you can't count on the big guns to provide the information or the backup? Well, the other, the other side, so the community-based Lyme specialists, they have yeah. their own organization. They meet one to two times a year to share information. So I wouldn't say they're winging it, but right. I'll be better off if there was some NIH-funded controlled trial. Right. Uh, the past trials, there's like five to seven trials that have been done 20 plus years ago. They were done on one antibiotic and all the research into the organism that we have right now says you have to hit that organism with multiple antibiotics and drugs to kill it. And this is true with AIDS too. They always talk about the solutions, AIDS cocktails. So with Lyme disease, the physicians that are having the most success and the one that treated us, you know, first of all, you find out what the co-infections are. And mm-hmm. sometimes you treat the co-infections first, like definitely spotted fever first, because that can kill you. You treat that with doxycycline. Then if you have like the other disease, Babesia, you kill that too. And you use anti-malarial drugs for that. And then you start attacking Lyme disease. And the Lyme disease, um, when it's moving around your body at first is, a, you know, a corkscrew shape. It goes through your tissue as easy as a corkscrew through a cork. And then once it settles in, it tries to find a place in your body where your immune system can't get to it. So that's usually your brain or joints that have a lot of scar tissue. Then if it's hit by antibiotics, it goes into a cell wall of form. So it's like little cysts, persisters, and it can hang out in your body for months to years until the coast is clear. And then it blossoms into spirochetes and moves to new places. So you need two different classes of antibiotics to get that. And oh, by the way, you have to treat carefully so you don't kill the patient <laughs> in the right. process. Right. It's so complicated for me. There's so many drugs and things that I'm taking that I don't know from, I should know better, but you know, when you have Lyme, 
it's hard to think straight. You know, we all had these little pill minders for a week. Yeah. It's complicated. Plus you can't even think. So it's a ridiculous situation. So we need more research so we can settle on a protocol that works for most people. Taking right. out the co-infections, which is another complexity. Right. So I have a question for you that maybe people are asking that I continuously ask is why do you think we don't have testing that works? Is it because of the big guns over here not wanting to have that happen if you follow the money trail and all that good stuff? One of the many reasons for this podcast is to collect connect, and share information that will add to your life. It is my honor and pleasure to share products with you that I buy, use, and believe in that are high quality, sustainable, responsible to our earth, and that actually work. One product I have been using for almost a year now, every day, and now twice a day with the diagnosis of my Lyme disease is collagen. Collagen is a buzzword right now because collagen is a protein that makes up 30% of our bodies. And like everything else, as we age, we lose it. Fine lines, brittle nails, dull hair, achy joints, dry skin are all part of why collagen is so essential. So let me share why Elaine Collagen, the brand I use, is in my opinion more effective than what's out there on those shelves. It is easy to use, tasteless, and dissolves into any beverage. It's non-GMO, and it's from cows raised in Spain, and no chemicals are used for its extraction. Bingo, speak in my language. You can experience the benefits for yourself and receive 15% off by using the code SECONDWIND, all one word, at checkout at elainewellness.com. And if you want to know more about Elaine and her Second Wind story, listen to her episode. The title is Plot Twist. There's no such thing as anti-aging from March 15, 2021. Now, back to the episode. Why do you think we don't have testing that works? Is it because of the big guns over here not wanting to have that happen if you follow the money trail and all that good stuff? Well, the vaccine resulted in a less effective test because the way vaccines work is you take a little piece of the organism and inject it in you and your body creates an immune yeah. memory. On yeah. So in the test, they took out the most specific surface molecules on the Lyme bacteria to use in the vaccine. If you'd had vaccinated, they didn't want the test to positive. So all of a sudden they've designed a test that is totally <laughs> not the best test there can be because they use those markers. So that's one reason it's not very good. Another thing is, as scientists, you want to isolate and test one thing. So when they were doing the vaccine, they said they sort of narrowed the definition of the disease to just be the rash mostly and a couple other markers, swollen knees, rash. And that's not really not, that was the 40 year ago view of the disease, but it's progressed. And now we know it's primarily a neurological disease. It affects all organs of the body. So we're just stuck with an oversimplified, incorrect definition of the disease and a test that doesn't work in the first month. And it's no better than a coin flip later on. So there's just a lot of inertia for these original researchers to admit, oh yeah, we're wrong. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for 30 years of ruined lives because we were wrong in the beginning. Right. So you go with your friend and then you decide, I got to do something. And you start the research, you start this documentary, and then you got into your book. 
bitten. And that's amazing, that book, and the history and all the ways you put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I mean, there are people that didn't want some of this information to be in your book. I mean, you do talk about how there suddenly were some guns perhaps in your vicinity being pointed very close to you. I mean, we're talking dangerous stuff. I mean, you and your life were at risk while you were researching. Can you share a little bit about that? It's remarkable. Yeah, so sort of the trigger point for when I decided to, that I might do a book. It was just so weird because I'd worked five years on the film. I need to get a real job because documentaries don't pay anything really. So I got a really good job at Stanford as a science writer and working with an amazing team of people. But about just when I started it, I went to a family birthday party. They had one birthday party on my husband's side. And it was all family except for this one guy who was a neighbor and he was mid seventies and he was really gruff, like the captain on the Jaws boat. And he was into his cups. His, his wife had just left him. And I was at a table with five other people. And I said, oh, what did you do before you retired? And he goes, I was black ops and the CIA. <laughs> Then he went on for about 15 minutes and talked about some of the operations he did in Vietnam, which it was like apocalypse now. He was basically an assassin. And then after that riveting story where we just couldn't believe we walked into this thing, he goes, but you know the weirdest thing I ever did? I dropped boxes of infected ticks on Cuban sugarcane workers during the Cold War. And it's like, it was just it was like the universe saying, and two weeks before I said, I'm done with Lyme. I'm going to move on. I got this good job. It was like the universe saying, uh-uh, you're not done. Because wow. I knew- he didn't even need to say that. He'd already shock factored you already, right? Right. And it's so was already open. And it's so bizarre. It has to be true. So I just spent the rest of the evening picking his brain. And I would, when he went to get a new drink, I would run into the bathroom and take notes on a tiny piece of paper because I didn't know anything about the Cold War at that time. Uh, Oh my gosh. And he named Operation Mongoose, which was the operation to kill Fidel Castro, the dictator of Cuba, and ruin his economy. And he worked under Colonel Lansdale. And so I saved those notes. And that's when I thought, oh, maybe. Maybe this is a bigger story than a documentarian that I knew and met along the way went and talked to the discoverer of Lyme disease, Willie Brookdorfer, and got him to sit to, at the very end of this brutal interview, he goes, okay, so Willie, when you went to investigate the outbreak of Lyme disease in Connecticut, did you see organisms that led you to believe that this could be a bioweapons accident or something you worked in the lab? And he just went like this, Willie did, and you could just see the emotions crossing his face. And he was silent for almost a whole minute. And then he goes, yeah. And that was the point where I said, this is a crime against humanity, if this is true. And I said, I need to write about this. I thought it would be a long article, but then I realized I had to put everything in context because if you just say they were stuffing diseases with ticks, it just sounds so ridiculous. You have to say the entomological program was enormous. The whole biological and chemical weapons program employed 10,000 employees and they had 50 universities working on little projects to support it and that are all classified. And this is a huge program. And this tick thing was just one accident among many. And it's really like an American Chernobyl, because if you mess with nature, there's just long-term replication. You can't just put it back in the box. And then I just had a couple lucky breaks. I mean, I went out to interview Willie. I got a little bit of information. I sort of hit a wall because all these documents are classified. And then I had this angel, I call him a badass Mormon, who 
Willie had heard about him and really liked the Mormon religion and said, called him up and said, I know you're a Lyme activist and I have, Willie Bergdorf of the Discovery says, I have some documents that you might find interesting. And then Ron knew I was writing about this topic through the Lyme network. And he said, Chris, do you want to come and look at these documents before I put them in the archive? And so that gave me enough meat to write the book because as a journalist, just because Willie said it's a bioweapon, you just can't go on that. You don't know if that person has a grudge against his employer or he just right. wants attention. So now I had his original lab books and I could tell there was a cover up during the Lyme thing and just went from there. <laughs> so real quick. So what yeah. they were doing, I mean, it's so good how you describe it. And he was slicing the little leg off the tick and onto a slide. And then he would infect it. What would they put in it? They put different kinds of organisms, right? In it? Well, in the they did something. So in the beginning of, which is 52, that Willie would put little glass pipettes down the, the ticks and then he would put various diseases and he would get a wish list from the military people. Oh, we want a tick that can survive in, you know, in Moscow in the winter that won't attract attention and will incapacitate a population, just make them chronically ill, not kill That's them. That's the whole goal of the bioweaponry is to just kind of undetectably knock people down. Right, for a while. right. It yeah. would be like Putin spraying a chronic disease over Ukraine. So everybody's sort of sick and they can't fight as robustly. And it's untraceable. It's not like you can see a fingerprint on a tick. Right. So it was that. So, so anyways, initially he's stuffed inside a tick's leptospirosis. It's another spirochete. Relapsing fever, another spirochete. Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, really deadly. Rabies, deadly. So he would just mix them and see, you know, could they survive inside the tick? Then he would take those infected ticks and put them on tiny mammals and see if they transmitted the disease. And then he would offer up his results to Fort Detrick, the biological weapons program, and they would decide what they want to mass produce. Because to make a weapon that you can deploy in the field, there's just like 10 steps. Will the organism take? Can they live together? Can you package them in a bomblet? and have them survive? Will they survive at altitude in the plane that delivers them? What's the shelf life? And then they do open air testing. So that's where I think the accident happened. They were doing open air uncontrolled experiments on Lone Star ticks for the military because those would work in Russia and on and on. So you originally asked, like, did I feel in danger? I was told when I got deep into the Cold War intelligence stuff, watch your back. So it was a little bit scary, but I don't think I ever felt imminently threatened. I knew when I went to Montana to the Rocky Mountain Lab that I was being probed and surveyed. And I believe that my emails were being read. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Where was that? It was at a hotel or something when you were out on the balcony or something and the gunman came around the corner. Oh, okay. That was just part of our paranoia. When I was in Utah. I don't know if it's paranoid. Okay. I really don't. But anyway. It's just a weird story that made us feel my husband and I uneasy. So Ron Lindorf got these documents from Willie Bergdorfer that showed the original lab notebooks. And we were going over the papers in his house. And then afterwards, I was using my husband as manual labor. <laughs> I said, okay, we'll stay at the Sundance Resort. If you do this for a couple of days with me, I'll reward you with that. So we went to the Sundance Resort. It's <laughs> a tiny little cabin. It's the one that Robert Redford, when he was shooting Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, he said, this is beautiful canyon. And he built this resort there. So we're there and we're just tired and we were freaked out because the documents we're reading were just horrible bioweapons experiments done by the Public Health Service, which is actually NIH at the now NIH. And we had a glass of wine and we could hear the burbling creek down there. And all of a sudden, four men and a woman in 
SWAT gear, like Kevlar vests, and automatic weapons drawn came around the back of the cabin and pounced on our deck with weapons drawn. And it was just like, oh my gosh, what did we do this? Are they filming? <laughs> right. And then the guy with a neck like a tree stump, he pulls out his cell phone. We're looking for this skinhead that escaped from the prison. Have you seen him? No. So, Sorry, ma'am. We'll go now. And then there were helicopters overhead. So there was a prison escape of a skinhead. And it just added, it was a good scene for this story. And it's so unbelievable. But it's also a little bit meta because Robert Redford was playing a bandito on the run when he discovered this property. And these people, we were on his property and then these people discovering a bandito on the run <laughs> end up on our porch. So it was very meta. That's so bizarre. That's so bizarre. So where are you now with the disease, A? And then B, I mean, we're still having problems with Lyme. It took me from the time I thought I had Lyme, did not receive that diagnosis. It took me about another I don't know, five weeks to actually get all the blood tests to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And that waiting time is you're in pain and it's awful and you don't feel good. It's just a nightmare and you don't know what to believe and what's out there. Like, where do you think we are with all that? You know, like I'm feeling more optimistic than ever. I mean, it was 17 years ago that I got bitten. So I'm frustrated at the slow pace, but in the last two years, I feel progress. So it feels like we're on the tipping point. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I think a lot of the people who are really entrenched have lost the original scientists are retired or they died or they lost some of their power. So they're holding on to that sort of dogma and the old science. There's new technologies that have been used in other diseases like COVID. I mean, we got a vaccine within a year, which before we didn't get a vaccine through the system in less than seven years. Right. That's good. We very rapidly made antibody tests and DNA tests for COVID. So I'm hoping some of that technology is transferable to Lyme disease. Mm, that'd be um, amazing. Yeah. And I just think the treatment protocols are better. So the people in the trenches fighting the Lyme patients are not as sick. So they have time. They can actually write letters to their congressmen, right. et cetera. Right. And it's awareness, right? That's going to be a huge part of all this. Right. And, and we have a couple of big books coming out that came out this year on Lyme disease. Ross Duthot's Lyme disease. He's a New York Times columnist and Megan O'Rourke. She's been writing about long COVID in the Atlantic. So that's getting the word out there. The film. Yeah, definitely. And then how are you and your husband? Yeah. So it took us, it took us like six months to know that we would probably get better. And then it was five years where we were just on oral antibiotics, which don't get into the brain very well on and off. And then once I finished the film, I went on IV antibiotics and to me, that got me over the hump. And so I've been symptom-free since 2009. Wow. My husband didn't do IV and he's had a couple of relapses and then he got long COVID. So he's struggling. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. So should he get the IV now? The IV uh, antibiotics? He just want to go down there. He's just got doctor fatigue. So uh, he's trying that's to do understandable. COVID. Yeah. One thing at a time, right? Right. So what's next for you? I know you can't say too much, but <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm working halftime at Invisible International, which is a foundation mostly focused on tick-borne diseases. And so I'm writing every day to get the word out, which I think, you know, blogs and feature articles. I have a really good article coming out about Bartonella any day now on Epic Vox. 
So I'm really, there are new tests for Bartonella, which is sort of a, a disease carried by ticks. We're not 100% sure it's transmitted by ticks, but I think it probably will, it will be because there are a lot of people who have Lyme and Bartonella. Bartonella is really creates massive inflammation in your brain, brain on fire. It can cause mental illness symptoms. So, you know, I'm just spreading the word. And this foundation, we're trying to educate the new generation of doctors, like the kind of doctors in the Grand Rounds. And we have free medical education courses on our website for both patients and doctors accredited for doctor credit. So I'm working on that. And then I'm working on when I did this deep dive on Cold War and chem bioweapons, there's just a lot of really fascinating side stories. So I continue the research on that. And I'm hoping to find the documentation of exactly what accident caused the outbreak of multiple tick-borne diseases around Lyme, Connecticut. So I have lots of yeah. free information act documents waiting. Like a couple of weeks ago, the CIA would give me the documents that I requested maybe five years after the request. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So I'm just hoping I get the answers before I die. <laughs> oh my, that is ridiculous. So if somebody's listening, whether they've had Lyme, haven't had Lyme, or know somebody who has, what would you say the best thing for them to do is if they've been, even if they want to help, what, you know, what can I do? Four of my favorite foundations, they always need help, you know, donations. One is the Center for Lyme Action. They set up virtual Zoom meetings with all your congressmen because the congressmen really take notes. If you say, I want you to fund the Hagen Tick Act, I want you to fund a center of excellence for Lyme disease. You know, there's just no place to get treated for Lyme disease on the West Coast, even though we know there's different strains of Lyme-like spirochetes that are causing disease there, relapsing fever. So that would all be great. <laughs> so I would say, see if you can join with another foundation. I don't think we need any more new foundations. It's just right. all the foundations have a specialty. One funds research, one LymeDisease.org has the best patient resources and they're collecting data directly from the patients. It's called my Lyme data. So yeah. yeah. And then invisible is trying to educate the next generation of doctors. Barry Lyme foundation is funding basic research. They did free tick testing. So if you pull out a tick, what you should do is put it in a little plastic baggie with a damp piece of paper towel and send it in to the many online organizations that will grind that tick up, sequence what organisms are in it. And in a lot of cases, that's faster than waiting to get a test for yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If the tick is still there. Right. If you see, it, like I never saw the tick. Right. I knew where the bite was. It was behind here, which is why I didn't see a rash, but it never healed. And that's where the bite was. And one thing I want to bring up that I, I was remiss in bringing up earlier was I have a friend whose mom, I remember I was 14 years old. I'm now 56. And she was diagnosed with MS when I was 14. And her daughter reached out to me and said, you know, her doctors now are saying her MS was brought on by Lyme disease way back when. And I think it's important for, and that's kind of, I mean, in my own gut says a lot of diseases, dis-ease of the body are started by something way back when that was awry. Epstein-Barr, Lyme. What do you think about that? I totally agree. The new view of the immune system is if you think about a waterline and if you're above the waterline, 
you're healthy. And if you're below the waterline, you're sick. And it's not like one germ comes into your body and makes you sick. It's sort of like your body is fighting off germs every single day. And you want to make sure you're above the waterline. And Lyme disease dysregulates your immune system. And all of a sudden you're underwater and all those opportunistic infections like Epstein-Barr or herpes come back to bite you. And so the new research out just in the last couple of weeks is they think, oh, MS, Epstein-Barr causes a lot of the MS syndromes. The Lyme specialists that I hang out with every week on Zooms, they think, well, maybe you get Lyme and it reactivates the Epstein-Barr. Maybe it's the germ gang, you know, both Lyme and Epstein-Barr that are presenting with the multiple sclerosis symptoms. But, you know, a lot of what the medical establishment does is put a label on a disease like fibromyalgia, MS, some cases of chronic fatigue, and they give you a syndrome label and then they quit looking for the cause. Now we have technologies that let us look for the cause. And I think that's sort of exciting because then if you know what's causing it, you might be able to treat it. Right. So just, you know, medicine really just keeps us right here. It helps us to not get worse, but it doesn't actually help us get better Yeah, for some of these things, right? Right. And if one thing getting Lyme does, I'm sure you can relate to this is all of a sudden you think about everything you put in your body. Like you work out more because you know, if you don't work out, everything's stagnant and you could sink down below the waterline again. You try to eat right. Yeah, all that stuff. And in my case, we think that maybe I've had like dormant Lyme for years and years and years and years and years, raising and rearing its ugly head every now and then for a weird bout of something. And then it would go away. So it's really interesting. And I think people need to really be aware of not just the symptoms, but maybe what could have brought those symptoms on. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I say. If you think you have this sort of waxing and waning Lyme disease, find a specialist someplace to at least know what tests to do, know how the symptoms present. You know, like if you have Lyme and Babesia, Babesia can give you air hunger. It can give you this ice pick in the heart. If you've bitten by a lone star tick, you might get this meat allergy from the saliva. So what that would mean is you'd eat red meat and then four to six hours later, you feel like throwing up, you'll get hives, you might have anaphylactic shock. So when a tick bites you, there are 18 diseases that it can transmit at least in the United States. And normally it's only one, two or three diseases, but all of them look different to a doctor and our frontline doctors, maybe they spent 15 minutes on tick diseases in 1980. They don't have the right information possibly. So go to a specialist. They've seen it all. It's expensive, but at least when you get a diagnosis, then you can go back into the insurance system and get treated. Yeah. There's hope. And that's the biggest part. And I think a lot of that has to do with you and your research and what you're tirelessly giving (laughs) of yourself to present the information to all of us. And I so appreciate it. And I'll tell you what, you gave me hope when I don't know what's wrong with you and no one can understand that you're in so much pain and you can't sleep and you don't know what to eat that's going to make you feel better and you have no energy and being able to find resources like you, instrumental. And I appreciate you and your efforts. And I'm sorry you got Lyme, but I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And and I would say just watch the documentary Under Our Skin 
under our skin. It's online and I think it's on Prime, but it really gives you a fast overview of the politics of the disease, common symptom sets. You have to understand you have to fight for the medical care that you deserve. Don't just take the first opinion, get a second opinion, hopefully from a specialist. And a lot of times people have seen it say, it helps me explain what I'm going through to my family. Because a lot of family members are saying, oh, you're lazy. Oh, you're a hypochondriac. It's like, no, this disease is real. And as you know, it's devastating. You look fine. People say, oh, you look great, but you feel horrible. Right. You said, was it you on Cindy Kennedy's podcast? Somebody said, you know, if the doctor came to you and said, if I stick this needle in your eye, it's going to make you better. You're like, okay, start sticking. Right. Because that's just how desperate you are to feel better. Yeah. Really interesting. Any information that you have given, I will put in the show notes. I highly recommend everybody watch Under Our Skin. I did. I made my husband sit down and watch it with me in the beginning of my diagnosis because I knew he didn't get it. And I was like, yeah, I can't go help you at the restaurant tonight. I can't move. I can't move right now. You could tell it just doesn't register. You look fine. What do you mean you can't go to the restaurant and help? I'm not asking you to do a lot. I'm not asking you to run a marathon. You're like, I can't even think about turning the key or turning the steering wheel. I just can't go there. So it's such a good documentary. I can't say enough. And Chris, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your wisdom with us and the things that you've learned. And it's just scratching the surface of all the stuff that's out there. I know I have so many pages of notes that we went over. I sent Chris a message after go, my head's spinning. I can't keep track. It's so much stuff, but it's really important. Yeah. I just can't. I love research and it's the best. Netflix 12 series. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I need to find out exactly what happened. It's just so interesting. And it's also interesting with a purpose. It's not just some rom-com script. It's like helping people, which is, it's nice because I just said, I never wanted another family to go through what we went through. It was just so heart-wrenching. We thought we'd leave our kids as orphans. So I just don't want other people to suffer like that. (laughs) I appreciate that so much and love that you're doing this. You're just one of those amazing people. Then I thank you for listening to the call and joining the fight. So thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.